na kona ipurangi no puna. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, and welcome to the long read from Stuff. This is part two of The Ballad of David Little and Mr Big by Stuff senior writer Mike White. If you've just stumbled across this, please jump back into the long read feed or the story on stuff.co.nz and find part one. That way you'll get up to speed and you'll avoid the spoilers I'm about to drop. If you are where you're meant to be, let's get into it. You'll remember from part one that David Little was charged with the murder of his best friend following an elaborate sting by police. This was followed by a long, protracted court process. There were trial delays and allegations of withholding evidence before Little was finally convicted in 2019. Now, here is part two of Mike White reading his story, The Ballad of David Little, and Mr. Big. David Little's lawyers took his case to the Court of Appeal in November 2020. They were adamant an elaborate Mr. Big operation by police had enticed Little to make a false confession that he'd murdered his best friend, Brett Hall. The fact everything Little told police about how he'd committed the murder and disposed of Hall's body proved to be false or wasn't backed up by police investigations showed his story was concocted, they argued. In March 2021, in a stinging judgment, the Court of Appeal quashed David Little's conviction. It agreed the Mr Big operation had gone too far, and evidence from it should never have been heard by the jury. The undercover ruse, it said, put significant psychological pressure on Little to confess. Police exploited his clear financial stress, exacerbating this by deliberately taking him away from his paid building work to perform tasks for the gang, which caused Little's wife considerable concern. At one point, Little tried to sell fundraising chocolate to undercover officers to raise money for his daughter's school camp. The operation had also preyed on Little's social isolation by offering him a group of supportive colleagues, the court said. The picture created of Scott's deep contacts within the police and his ability to fix any issues Little had with him was a particularly manipulative feature, according to the judges. The reality was, confessing to Scott carried no risks or downsides for Little. It would merely confirm what Scott had been told by his police insider, and saying he'd killed Hall removed the barrier to him joining the gang and receiving enormous financial benefits. In short, There was little incentive or reason not to admit the killing, and much to be gained from it, whether it was true or not. In other Mr Big cases, the suspect's confession has led to crucial evidence being uncovered, such as Kamal Reddy showing undercover police where he'd buried the bodies of his former girlfriend and her daughter. However, in David Little's case, virtually nothing he told Scott carried any credibility according to the Court of Appeal. In its judgment, it listed a string of inconsistencies and holes in the police case. Number one. Little said he committed the murder because Hall was getting back into methamphetamine, and Little feared for his own safety. However, Little had known Hall for years when he was using methamphetamine, and he'd never previously been concerned. Moreover, there was no evidence Hall was violent when using the drug. Number two. 
Little claimed he and Hall had a punch-up prior to the murder, but nobody, including police who saw him shortly after Hall disappeared, recalled any sign of him being in a fight. Number three. Little claimed he took 30 seconds to cut Hall's body in half. One expert at trial estimated such a procedure would take at least several minutes. Another said it would take 20 to 30 minutes. Number four. Both pathologists said the dissection would have been extremely bloody and little would have got Hall's blood on him. One said it was inconceivable such dismembering wouldn't have created an unholy mess. But no trace of blood or Brett Hall's DNA was ever found on Little's clothes or in his ute where the body supposedly sat for nearly two days. The Court of Appeal said it was striking that no forensic evidence was found that corroborated Mr Little's admissions. One pathologist said Little's story of cutting Hall in half was the figment of an uneducated and unsophisticated mind. Nothing more. Number five. Little said he put Hall's body into rubbish bags he bought from Martin New World. However, CCTV footage showed Little didn't buy the bags until the day after he claimed he'd killed and cut up Hall. Number six. He said he'd burnt the tarpaulin he dissected Hall on, and other evidence, in the fireplace at Hall's property, and the fire burnt for three days. However, no evidence of a tarpaulin was found in the fire's ashes. And when Hall's son visited the property the day after Little supposedly killed Brett Hall, the fire was completely cold. Number seven. Expert analysis of CCTV footage showed two white objects in the back of Little's vehicle on the Sunday he was supposedly disposing of Hall's body. The objects are consistent with the fishing chilli bins Little had earlier told police he had in his ute. The photos certainly didn't show firewood covering Hall's body, as Little described it to Scott in his confession. Number eight. Little told Scott he'd left his phone at home on the Sunday morning to avoid detection, but phone records show he had it with him and had used it. Number nine. He also claimed he knew where the CCTV cameras were and had avoided them on his way to dispose of Hall's body. However, he was photographed eight times that morning between 4.01am and 7.47am, including at a service station, one of the most obvious places a camera would be. Number 10. Little claimed he drove along the beach from Turakina Beach to Santoff Forest that morning, but CCTV footage shows him going south on the main road through Turakina. Number 11. He said he then drove from Santoff Forest along the coast to Himatangi Beach. However, even police accepted this was impossible, as it required crossing the Rangatike River, and there were no bridges in the area. Number 12. Little claimed he buried Hall's legs in Santoff Forest on the Sunday morning when there was a large army exercise in the forest. Despite this, nobody saw him in the area. Number 13. Police also had to accept it was simply impossible for Little to have travelled from Santoff Forest to Himatangi Beach and buried and burnt Hall's torso in the two-hour window between CCTV sightings of him. The driving time alone would have taken well over an hour. Number 14. Little's claim he dug a hole at Hamatangi Beach by hand that was two metres deep and could hold ten people was demonstrably false, according to the Court of Appeal. When police tried to dig a hole in the same location, they found it impossible, as the sand kept caving in. And number 15. 
His story that he then burnt the body parts for two hours didn't fit with sightings of him, and one expert said it was simply impossible to build a fire with enough heat to burn a body in a hole that deep and damp in that time. Nobody reported seeing any smoke or fire in either of the locations Little said he burnt the body. The Court of Appeal repeatedly called Little's story patently false, lacking credibility, and found that it could not be correct. The inherent implausibility of Mr Little's assertions and their lack of congruence with the objective evidence lead us to the conclusion his admissions were, in all likelihood, made in order to convince Scott to allow him into the organisation so that he could reap the rewards he expected to receive. A miscarriage of justice has occurred, they concluded. The court's judgment, quashing Little's conviction and ruling all the Mr Big evidence was inadmissible, was released at midday on March 11th, 2021. Little was immediately freed from prison, picked up by wife Helen, and was home in time to greet his youngest daughter when she returned from school. By then, he'd spent more than four years in jail since his arrest in 2014. In Auckland, conducting another trial, Hall and Stevenson celebrated with champagne that night at a restaurant. But if they imagined their work was finished, or Little thought his 10-year ordeal was over, they were all about to be devastated. Despite being left with little remaining evidence against Little, Prosecutor Michelle Wilkinson-Smith indicated she intended to have him stand trial again. Furious, Hall and Stevenson moved to have the charges dismissed. In a two-day hearing in late November 2021, they argued there was virtually nothing implicating Little anymore other than police intractability and snippets of benign behaviour that were being interpreted as sinister by the prosecutor. It was, Stevenson said, an elaborate theory without proof. Not only was there no body, no proof of a murder, no witnesses and no forensics linking Little to a crime, the alleged motive was preposterous. As Elizabeth Hall pointed out, why would Little kill Brett Hall when he was just days away from being paid around $40,000, money he desperately needed, for building the Pitangi house. Moreover, there was clear evidence pointing to Brett Hall's drug-dealing associates being responsible, including information the police were aware of, but had kept from them. In response, Wilkinson-Smith pointed to other statements Little had made after his arrest that could suggest he was admitting to the crime, and ammunition and gun parts Little led undercover officers to during the Mr Big operation that were from the same type of firearms as the two rifles missing from Hall's camp. She insisted there was evidence showing Hall and Little had fallen out over the house build, and highlighted Little's inconsistent statements and his enthusiasm from very early in the investigation to point the finger at Hall's drug dealing as the reason for his demise. Wilkinson Smith declined to comment for the story. Just over two weeks later, Justice Simon France issued his findings dismissing all charges against Little, the equivalent of an acquittal. He said the Crown and police theory that Little killed Brett Hall due to tensions over the building of Hall's house was speculative at best and lacks any real substance. Instead, he highlighted the alternative scenario 
that Hall's death was the result of his association with significant criminals and a major drug deal that weekend involving the co-owner of Hall's property. This person has never agreed to make a formal statement to police about Hall's disappearance. Justice France wrote, Evidence suggests the drug event did not go well. It is sufficient to say that, as a cohort, the persons concerning whom this evidence relates are a more likely source of harm to Mr Hall than Mr Little. In a rare, unsparing judicial comment on the quality of a police investigation, Justice France said the drug dealing provided a context and an explanation much more convincing than the alleged building project motive. The Crown's motive evidence, in my view, is both thin in itself and an improbable motive for one good friend to kill another. He went on to acknowledge there was no direct evidence against Little. It is a theory based on equivocal circumstances where there is no body and no knowledge of how Mr Hall died. Further, there is an alternative context that provides a more compelling narrative. Just before Christmas, a brief court hearing was held to officially dismiss the charges against David Little. From his home in Halcombe, Little watched the final act in 10 years of trials and trauma via video link with the court, holding hands with wife Helen in front of the family's Christmas tree. Hi, I'm Michael Wright, host of The Long Read. If you're an advertiser and you like what you're hearing, you could help us keep making podcasts like this one. Thousands of people listen to stuff podcasts every day. So if you'd like to be part of one of New Zealand's biggest and best podcast platforms, go to advertise.stuff.co.nz slash audio and get in touch with us. Back to the show. The 18th century English judge and jurist Sir William Blackstone described confessions to crimes this way. They are the weakest and most suspicious of all testimony, ever liable to be obtained by artifice, false hopes, promises of favour or menaces, and incapable in their nature of being disproved by negative evidence. It's unlikely Blackstone contemplated anything like the finessed fantasy of a Mr Big operation intended to extract a confession from someone. But even he realised the overwhelming power of a confession once made. When the Privy Council quashed Tana Pora's conviction for raping and murdering Susan Burdett in 2015, it noted how most people would assume confessions must be reliable. Why would someone confess to a dreadful crime if they were not guilty of it? But experience has shown that false confessions, even to the most serious of offences, are often made. Indeed, nearly two-thirds of cases in the United States where people were convicted of murder only to be later exonerated by DNA involved false confessions. And research has proved that juries are unable to ignore confessions, even when later denied, and are significantly more likely to convict people who have made them. As one American judge has commented, after the thrust of the sabre, it's difficult to say, forget the wound. And despite police maintaining the primary purpose of Mr Big Operations is to establish the truth, the High Court, Court of Appeal and Supreme Court have all ruled the fundamental aim is to elicit a confession from a suspect. The crucial issue, of course, is 
Is the confession the truth or a lie the suspect has been induced into saying? In Canada, where the Mr Big scenario was created and used hundreds of times, it became apparent that in several cases, suspects' confessions were false and people had been wrongfully convicted. Ironically, at the very time police here were painstakingly constructing their sting against David Little, Canada's Supreme Court ruled the technique was so risky any confession should be presumptively inadmissible. This meant they couldn't be used as evidence unless they also revealed other evidence confirming them, like where a body was buried. Timothy Moore, a psychology professor at Canada's York University and international expert on Mr Big Operations, says the tactic is still being used by police in Canada, but is now more restricted. It is used rarely in the rest of the world, and Moore says the fact it isn't employed even in the United States, which has an unenviable record of wrongfully convicting innocent people, ought to be telling us something. One of the problems with Mr Big confessions is they automatically provide a presumption of guilt rather than innocence. The confession is the kiss of death in front of a jury, Moore says. They also give an unfavourable lens through which jurors view all other evidence. Not only do juries see a defendant who is willing to carry out criminal acts with a Mr Big Gang, but otherwise innocent or explicable acts are seen in the light of the confession and deemed sinister, says Moore. The temptations to admit to a crime, joining the gang, reaping the financial rewards, are incredibly powerful, Moore says and procuring a confession from a vulnerable person who's under pressure with these huge incentives on offer is an unremarkable achievement, as well as an unreliable one. Police have created a fantasy world for this guy over many months, Moore says, rigging a situation in which an innocent person could have as many good reasons to lie to Mr Big as he has to tell the truth and jeopardise his new lifestyle. So, should we be surprised that sometimes... What you get in this new fantasy world is also fantasy from the target. Moore examined David Little's case and says his claims about disposing of Brett Hall's body were preposterous. There's no blood in the car, no weapons, no shell casings, no DNA. I mean, I thought it was outrageous. I still do. Otago University law professor Andrew Geddes says the Mr Big technique needs some form of regulation or independent oversight. Perhaps the most invasive and deceptive undercover tactic is, at present, left entirely to police discretion, while much more minor operations, like phone taps or searches, are regulated and require warrants issued by judges. Even the Supreme Court has pointed to this potential problem. Geddes says internal police guidelines around Mr Big operations, which police admit having but refuse to release, obviously don't work, and an independent body was needed to supervise such activities. Auckland University Associate Professor Scott Optican says we need a broader discussion about the limits of deceptive and undercover policing. I think we need to ask ourselves, how far do you want the police to go? We don't let police torture people. Everybody agrees on that. And even if a confession was true, we still wouldn't use it. And we do this because we don't think it's right to live in a society where law enforcement can use these tactics. Optican is staggered that the Mr Big technique is still able to be used by police. It's remarkable crims keep falling for this. It's in Wikipedia and the papers. 
Obviously, they're dealing with a class of criminals that's really stupid. Big crims wouldn't fall for this stuff. Of course, you can take your pick in David Little's case. He was either stupid enough, or naive enough, or desperate enough to believe in the Mr. Big gang and the fake criminal activities he was sucked into. But it was skillfully and gradually done. Carefully calibrated coercion, according to one of Little's lawyers, Christopher Stevenson. Stevenson labelled the police investigation incompetent and says it's hard to imagine a criminal case going more seriously off the rails. A man goes missing. He's immersed in the dangerous, violent, high-end methamphetamine drug-dealing world. And instead of focusing on people from that world, police focus on his criminal conviction-free best friend, the reasonably straightforward David Little, with his wife and three children, who's helping his mate build a house. Stevenson says detectives in Little's case were victims of classic tunnel vision. They were hoodwinked by other suspects, missed crucial evidence that the defence uncovered, and persisted despite Little's ludicrous confession. Elizabeth Hall says it's one of the worst investigations she's ever seen, exposed only by the sheer bloody-mindedness of the defence, who absolutely believed Little was innocent, based on the evidence they discovered. Given that time and time again, evidence pointing to Little's innocence was withheld by police, Hall says, I think it's difficult to see that's not something more than just a coincidence or accident. Stevenson says there need to be consequences for such egregious non-disclosure by police. What we want is for it to stop happening. Where's the accountability? Where's the investigation? Where's the inquiry into what went wrong? It's a bit like nobody really cares and nobody has any motivation to see these things corrected. In March 2022, in a judgment related to David Little's case, the Court of Appeal ruled senior police officers were heavily implicated in the litany of significant failures by police to disclose information. Those police officers appeared to have either willfully ignored the requirements of the Criminal Disclosure Act or recklessly chose not to seek legal advice, the court said, adding the breaches were egregious and an affront to the administration of justice. Despite Justice France clearly suggesting police had got the wrong man and that there was a more logical scenario and culprit for Brett Hall's murder, police are unmoved and appear to be refusing to consider anyone other than David Little. In a statement they said, Police do not intend to relaunch an investigation into Mr Hall's disappearance. However, we are cognizant that his body has never been recovered and would welcome any information that might help return him to his whānau. Police have failed to respond to numerous other questions about the case, sent to them in January 2022. They've insisted inquiries be dealt with under the Official Information Act, which requires them to respond within 20 working days, but unilaterally extended this by a further 20 working days. It's disturbing that the police take this view, Elizabeth Hall says. It's disappointing, but it's not surprising, given everything we know about how police form their views. Why would you expect objectivity now? Stevenson says the most galling thing about the police attitude was that it meant the likely killers were still walking free in the community. He says David Little is looking at his legal options for what he suffered in the last 10 years. 
Mostly, he wanted people held accountable for what they did to him. He and his poor family were all but decimated by this operation, Stevenson says. It was a wrecking ball into their lives, and they'll never recover from it. What's happened to David Little and his family is wickedly unjust. It's catastrophic, adds Hall. I don't think anyone can really put words around the effect that it's had on David and his wife and their children and extended family, and the devastation this has caused. Of course, there's another family that's been devastated by what's happened, and another view on it. When Lee Hall, 77, goes to bed each night, she says goodnight to her son Brett, whose photo sits in a frame in her bedroom. She says good morning to him when she wakes. Brett was a lovely guy who would help anyone, she says, and a fantastic father to his son and grandfather to his two young grandchildren. He was always there for me, she says. He loved it up at Pitangi and couldn't wait to get his house built and have a garden and lead a quiet life. And it was all taken away from him, says Lee. It's so sad. I mean, he was only 47 and it was all taken away from him. And Lee has no doubt who it was that took everything away from her son, David Little. From the first few days of the search for Brett, her family felt Little wasn't telling the truth and the fact he later confessed to the murder seems incontrovertible for Lee Hall. I think it stinks. It's coming up 11 years now that we've had to go through all this. I think we're all just angry that there's no justice for Brett. None whatsoever. The jury found him guilty. How the hell can it be dismissed when they found him guilty? I've often said the law in New Zealand is just a bloody big ass. And by God it is, it really is. Lee says police have always been very understanding and sympathetic, and the court's decisions made a mockery of their enormous efforts to solve the case. And she blames Little's cunning lawyers for what's happened. I don't know how they live with themselves. But I still feel, and the family all feel, if we got Brett back, we couldn't give a damn. Don't care what happened to anybody, as long as we got him back. But I can't see that happening. Helen Little knows there's nothing she says about her husband that will change Lee Hall's mind. She feels Lee and her family have been convinced by police that David Little is guilty, but wishes Lee could see the truth. Helen never doubted her husband, always knew he was innocent. That's why I've fought so hard beside him, she says. They met when she was 21. They've been together 35 years, married for 29. When police first accused David of Brett Hall's murder in 2011, their children were 6, 8 and 15. They were present when police searched their house, the children's rooms turned upside down, officers insisting their eight-year-old daughter give up the password to her diary. Twice, Helen says, police visited their 15-year-old son to ask him questions without her permission. Their youngest daughter has been so traumatised by what's happened, she can't remember large parts of her childhood. Much of it was spent visiting her father in prison. All your hopes and dreams for your children, Helen says, and the things you wanted to do with them, holidays we'd planned, and all those wonderful memories that you want to create for your children to treasure, 
have all been taken away from them. They had a nightmare of a childhood. Police bugged their home, including the little's bedroom. The most intimate parts of your life are just exposed, Helen says through tears. That's something I've really struggled with, and I still do. Police would visit Helen out of the blue at McDonald's where she worked, making it obvious to her colleagues and bosses they believed her husband was a murderer. They would regularly drive past the Littles' home, even though they live on a back road, to remind them they were watching the family, Helen believes. She says police told her that her husband had killed Brett Hall and wouldn't listen to anything she said. Instead, they told her wives usually don't know when their husbands are murderers. At her husband's trial, she was astounded when, in her opinion, officers didn't tell the truth. I said to David, how on earth can they swear on a Bible and then blatantly lie? Because I'm a Christian and that really, really got to me. You think police are there to uphold the law, and you learn very fast, actually, they're not. It's so corrupt. She realises her comments about police might seem harsh. But, well, they've said whatever they want about my husband. Helen says her faith has kept her going at the worst of times. When people in my church asked, what can we pray for? I'd say, for the truth to come out. That's all I've ever, ever asked for. But David Little's brother and mother never got to see the truth come out. Three weeks after he was convicted, his youngest brother, Dion, took his own life. A year later, his mother died. She basically gave up, says Helen. She was never the same once David was found guilty. David Little didn't attend her funeral, not wanting his children to see him in prison handcuffs. So much of life will never get back, says Helen. People go, oh, now it's been thrown out, you can get back to normal. But what's normal? I don't think we'll ever be normal, like it was before this. Dave and I will never be the same. We're close, we're stronger in ways because of it, but we've lost a lot too. She says her husband used to be a workaholic, but is now exhausted mentally, physically and emotionally. To see him from what he was to what he is now breaks my heart because he's not the same man. And we've seen our kids suffer beyond what any child should ever have to go through. People tell them that compensation might help put the pieces of their lives back together. But we don't care about money, Helen says. What matters to us is clearing Dave's name. Yes, of course we should be compensated. Dave's done seven years when he couldn't work because of this. We've lost everything financially. We've got nothing. But honestly, I don't care. I've got my family. That's all that matters to me. Helen Little thought this last Christmas was going to be their best ever. The news that charges against her husband had finally been dismissed meant for the first time in a decade the family could be together without the murder charge souring celebrations. And they did get together, all the kids at home on Christmas Eve and morning, which was special, Helen says. But later, when she went to see her family near Wellington, David Little just didn't feel up to it. Instead, he went to see his mother and brother Dion, 
spending three hours at their graves in Fielding Cemetery. David Little, now 56, believes they'd still be alive if he hadn't been in jail. Because I'm the one that held the family together, he says. The whole bloody family fell apart since I went in and all this crap's happened. Perhaps strangely, he still has faith in the police. I just think there's the odd bad one out there. If you've got no trust in them, you might as well just let the country go bloody crazy. But as equanimity evaporates when it comes to Nick O'Neill, the undercover cop who pretended to be his friend for three months while meticulously scheming his demise. He's just a flippin' asshole. Little says. I just can't believe the whole bloody thing. I'm so disgusted, it's just crazy, it really is. He wonders how many millions of dollars were spent going to extreme lengths to set him up and extract a false confession, let alone the legal fiasco that followed for years afterwards. And he wonders how many of the cops involved had doubts about what they were doing and if they were targeting the right man when his confession proved to be so ridiculous. Without his family and lawyers, Little knows he'd still be in jail, still be a convicted murderer, still have his day truncated by the clang of a cell door and the shouts of other caged men. I'm just so grateful for that, he says. You've just got to have somebody who believes in you. That was the conclusion of The Ballad of David Little and Mr Big on The Long Read from Stuff, written and read by Mike White and produced by me, Michael Wright. This episode was recorded by Jack Price. Stuff's podcast director is Adam Dudding. If you listened via our website, you can hear this story and more like it on The Long Read podcast, available on all the usual platforms. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review. It helps other listeners find us. Thanks for listening. Thank you.